Hey, we are continuing a series of messages from the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, why don't you grab it? We're, I'm going to try to do a Herculean task. We're going to cover, cover chapters 5 and 6 today um, because I spent way too much time having fun last week with a passage in chapter 4, the emergency circumcision passage. You thought uh, you weren't going to hear that word again? There it is. It pops up again. And uh, I, that, that passage just blew my mind last week. And so this week, we have to do chapters 5 and 6. And it is really, really good. Um, so I'm going to read through the passage. And as I'm doing, I'm going to make a few little comments. We're going to highlight some key themes in there. And then I'm going to unpack those three key themes after we get all the way through this. You guys with me? Sweet. That's what we're going to do. Uh, buckle up. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the scriptures, for the way that you love us, for the way that you teach us about yourself through these kind of ancient scriptures, the way that you have moved and worked among humanity, the way that you've worked in this unique situation with Israel. Lord, would you teach us about yourself, and would you continue to teach us about how to be the people of God in our world today through here? And we just say we welcome you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Afterward, you have to go back to see what the afterward's after in chapter 4, but we're not going to do that. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Just pause there for a second. Look what Moses and Aaron are saying that Yahweh is asking. This is what Yahweh, the the covenant maker, the Elohim, the deity of Israel, his personal name, this is what Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel says, you know, um, that they want to go have a festival, that they want to like celebrate, they want to make a pilgrimage, they want to have a feast. The, the, The deity is announcing that these people are oppressing my people. I love it. Let my people go. There's an ownership. There's a connection to these people. These are my people. And it's a request basically to take all the Hebrews into the wilderness on a camping trip to worship God. The entire purpose for freedom here is that they go worship. This isn't just freedom for freedom's sake. It's that they go worship. That's the entire purpose of the exodus. So what is worship? Like, why is that such a big deal? We're going to get to that a lot more later. But for now, worship is when you put something into the center of your existence, when you give glory, when you give weight to something, when you hold that thing that you hold in the highest esteem. And in this passage, God is declaring to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron that he wants his people to put himself in the center on this little festival, on this pilgrimage. They're to reorganize their lives around Yahweh. By the way, the whole rest of Exodus is going to unpack what that looks like, as well as Deuteronomy and Leviticus, right? We we won't study those in this series, but they're really fun. There's really good stuff there. They're to reorganize their lives around Yahweh. Okay, that's chapter one. That's verse one. Verse two. (laughs) Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. <laughs> I love this. Pharaoh's perspective is, who is the Lord? Who is this Yahweh 
that I should let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. I'm not going to let him go. The name of your God means nothing to me. Stop wasting my time. Get back to work. Yahweh, Pharaoh is saying, is of no significance to me. Your deity means nothing to me. Knowing Yahweh is the key to understanding the whole book of Exodus. Knowing Yahweh is the key. I do not know this Yahweh. Right? The rest of the whole narrative is about God's response to this, to Pharaoh's challenge. The whole rest of it. Yahweh is going to introduce himself to Pharaoh. So here's the deal. Like a giant part of Egyptian culture is the belief that the king, that Pharaoh, is divine. That he is divine. He is, hu- he is God-made flesh. The divine made himself known in the person of the king. That's thought to be the embodiment of all divine power. Right? In fact, the storage cities that they were building were storage cities most likely for everything needed to worship Pharaoh long into the future after he's dead. That's what the storage was for, all the stuff to worship him. It was his legacy that they were building. It was his legacy. So this deity worshipped by this immigrant slave population has zero significance. Think of Exodus not just as a cultural clash, but as a conflict between deities. There's a human saying that he's divine. This goes way beyond two two cultures, Egyptians and Hebrews. In the 10th plague, God says that he's striking down all the gods of Egypt. A human has challenged the one who is. I am. Yahweh, I am as if they're on equal ground. And Yahweh is going to reduce this king to human size. Because that's what he is. Do you realize at some point, God is going to reduce everything to its proper size? Every person that we think is divine, (laughs) every person who thinks that they're in charge, at some point in history, God's going to reduce everything to its proper size. I wonder if this kingdom of God that Jesus has invited us into, life in the kingdom, life to the fullest extent possible, is actually about living as if everything were its proper size right now. I think that's a big part of what following Jesus is. Living as if everything were its proper size right now. Okay, that's verse two. Verse three. (laughs) Then they said, you're thinking... How, Michael, how are you going to make it through all this? Well, there's some parts I'm going to read really fast. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Remember, this is Moses and Aaron talking to Pharaoh. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues of the sword. Notice that their request isn't for total, like, like the abolition of slavery. Their request isn't that, that they leave forever. Their request is for a three-day weekend to go worship the Lord. That's their request, a three-day weekend to go worship the Lord. At the very very least, that's what it is. And in Pharaoh's response to this little request, we see what kind of a boss, what kind of a taskmaster, what kind of a divine human pretending to be divine person he really is. His hard-heartedness is actually really on display. 
And their argument is that it's in Pharaoh's best interest to let them go do this, right? So his labor force doesn't get wiped out by a plague or something else. He's saying, they're saying, our deity could wipe us out if you don't let us go worship. That's what they're saying. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. Look at verse 4. But the king of Egypt said, Moses says, Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That word numerous reflects back to chapter 2, chapter 1, all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, where one of the commands that God gives his people is to be fruitful and multiply, and this is happening under Pharaoh's watch. Previous pharaohs that were related, that, that, um, that knew Joseph, uh, were, saw that as a blessing. This pharaoh sees that as a threat. And because they're so numerous, he says, get them back to work. Verse 6, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. More bricks, less straw. (laughs) The heat gets turned up in this situation. Pharaoh's desire to be the deity in charge is not going to go down without a fight. Our desire to be the deity in charge of our own lives does not go down without a fight. I mean, not to put too fine of a point on it. It is hard for us to let go of wanting to be the boss of everything in our lives, to want to call the shots. Last week, we talked about this really key point from here, that as a follower of Christ, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Our desire never goes down without a fight. Pharaoh wants all the worship. This king wants all the people to serve him. If we're really honest, so do we. We want our opinions to always be the right ones. Exodus 5, verse 10. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw, and the slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? The workload and the expectations increase, the resources decrease. There's so much that we could unpack in this. Listen, you might not be in slavery to an ancient pharaoh, but my bet is that you're struggling against some sort of slavery today. It could be an annoying habit, It could be an addictive behavior. You're looking for freedom, but as you do, the expectations seem to increase. The resources you bring to the table seem to decrease. The heat gets turned up. You feel worse than before you realized that there was an issue. Anybody ever experienced that? All of a sudden, you begin a while, and then all of a sudden, it's like, Everything, and and then you feel like there's an answer, and then you feel like everything begins to get worse. That's exactly what these guys are living through. 
I feel like we live through that internally. And then you begin to feel pretty beat up, like somebody's been beating on you. Verse 15, then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Get this, verse 15. Then the Israelite overseers who were getting beat went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers go and appeal to the false deity. They don't go to God. They don't pray. The people of God go to the false God for an answer. And it doesn't work well. They go to the one holding them captive. They don't go to the one who made a covenant with Abraham. They don't even go back to Moses and Aaron. They go to their false... I I wonder how often, when we're in that place, God is the last place we go. I wonder how often that is. Years ago, a personal story, years ago, as a new pastor in this church, like 25 years ago, it's been a while, my beard was not white at that time. Nobody called me Santa at the airport. Um, and uh, they had just come out with this cool new thing called caller ID on our phones, and so that you could see who was calling, right? Brenda and I immediately got that, because as new pastors, it wasn't a large church, it was like 100 people or so, we would often get calls from people struggling. And we'd have to like think, hey, this is the family dinner time, is this a time to answer that call or not? And generally, I would answer, because I want to be helpful, I'm an introvert, and like people annoy me even way more back then, but... Um, but, but like I'm being paid to be a pastor, and so I should answer the call and like be nice, right? And pray for them at least. And, and what I noticed is it was always around kind of inopportune times with my family. And so caller ID was a marvelous. Like I would just let that go to the answering machine. And it was an old machine that had like little tiny mini cassette tapes. Anybody remember those days? It was an amazing time to be alive. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that was funny. Um, Anyway, so I would let that go to the answering machine, and then like an hour later, after like stuff was ready with the kids, maybe we'd put them to bed, I'd call back, and I'd say, hey, I got your message, how are you doing? And I can't tell you the number of times this is what I heard. Like, well, when you didn't answer, I prayed. And I thought, it's helpful as a pastor not to answer sometimes, because I'm not God. When you didn't answer, I prayed, and then this is what happened. And I'm like, this is genius. Like, nobody taught you this in pastor school that I didn't go to. Nobody taught you this thing, right? To actually let there be some space and let people actually turn to God. These guys don't do that. I wonder how often that's true for us, that our first place we go is Wikipedia or Google or some other place. Rather than just asking, turning to the one who makes the covenant with us. And they don't get any help. They're being, other than being told they're lazy, Listen, whenever you're really struggling and the messages that you hear are either try harder, you just need to try harder, you just need to read your Bible more, or the message you hear is you got this, 
Just look within. Everything you need is within. When, when you hear one of those two messages, you're not hearing the gospel of Jesus. If it's a try-harder message, or if it's a everything you need is within, you're not hearing the gospel of Jesus, which is God's grace. God's grace. We're going to get to that more in just a little bit when I unpack this. Okay, verse 20. Are you guys still with me? Oh my gosh, this is so cool. Verse 20. When they left Pharaoh... These are the Israelite overseers who just got told they're lazy. They found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said this to Moses and Aaron, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They are mad. They were hoping for freedom. And not only did Pharaoh say no, he made their lives more miserable. And so now they blame Moses and Aaron. Things aren't going the way they wanted to do. We do the blame game. Can I just remind you of what happened at the end of of, uh, Exodus chapter 4? Just go back to Exodus chapter 4. If you're in your Bible, it's just right across the page. If you're using one of these or just scroll back a little bit. Verse 29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, these same people. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed all the signs and wonders before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. They had just believed that what God was about to do through Moses and Aaron was true. They humbly bowed down and worshiped in gratitude because it's clear that God had seen their suffering and was about to answer their prayers. But when it was not working according to their plan and their timeline, the way that they think it should work out, they're mad because it's tougher doing this than blissfully living in slavery. It's tougher to follow God in this process than just blissfully. That's going to be a repeating pattern throughout Exodus. You guys, that is such a repeating pattern in our lives, isn't it? I don't even need to like apply it. You just know it. God is going to be proving his trustworthiness over and over. Every time when their needs are not immediately met in the way they want, they're going to complain and criticize their leaders. I wonder how often we get mad and turn our backs on God because he doesn't do what we want to do, what we want him to do, when we want him to do it. You guys, I've watched so many people turn away from God over 25 years. I've watched so many people turn away from God because somebody in their family got cancer got AIDS, passed away, brain tumor. And I've watched other people turn towards God and their relationship with him just flourish and develop when the same kinds of things happen. It's fascinating to watch like the different ways that people respond to hardship in their lives, whether they trust God in the midst of that hardship or not. I wonder how often we get mad and just turn our backs on God because it's not going the way we wanted. Somebody said something offensive to me at church, and so now I'm going to deconstruct. And I'm not making fun of that whole deconstruction process. Some of what you constructed in your faith absolutely needs deconstructed. You can build a toothpick house on that foundation. And it doesn't mean that we just walk away. It means we get some better building materials, and we build something really worth it in our lives. Exodus... uh, Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord. So Moses gets criticized. Look what he does. Moses returned to the Lord. There's nobody else to turn to. Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is that why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, 
He has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. I love that. Moses has no one else to complain to. He turns to Yahweh. It's not working. And then we get chapter six, which is this amazing speech from Yahweh. It's so glad it's recorded. Chapter six, this amazing conversation. No, it's not a conversation. It's a speech. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God is saying that the way he's going to get his way in this situation, that Pharaoh will not only let them go, he will cast them out, cast them out of Egypt. What would have to happen for Pharaoh? Think about it at this moment. What would have to happen for Pharaoh to not only just let them go, but to cast them out, like to throw them out, to say, please go, get out of here, and even give them all the resources they need to do that? A whole lot of pressure is going to have to happen. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. The whole point from chapter five all the way to chapter 12. The big point is that God is making himself known. That's gonna be the big point over this, knowing who Yahweh is. Now, can I, can I take you guys into a really, I think a fascinating little Hebrew debate, Hebrew language debate? Okay, if you said no, just tune out for a second. If you said yes, here we go. How you translate these words is a super long-standing debate. And there's scholars that end up all over the place. This, the way I would say, I agree with a lot of the scholars who would say that our English translations here are not really all that helpful, which basically say, I'm Yahweh, I showed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, the Almighty One. And then all of our English translations set up a contrast between God revealing himself as Yahweh versus revealing himself as El Shaddai. Once I revealed myself as El Shaddai, now I'm gonna reveal myself as Yahweh. There's two problems. First, in Genesis, we read that God revealed himself to all three of these folks, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as both El Shaddai, the Almighty One, and as Yahweh, the covenant maker. Actually, both names are used. And then secondly, you kind of have to fight the, uh, against the way that Hebrew sentences and words are normally work to read it that way. So one person translates it, and they say this. Uh, Umberto Casato, an Italian-Jewish commentator, says, they didn't know me yet because they lived, they didn't know me as Yahweh yet because they lived before the fulfillment of my promise to bring them into the promised land. And that kind of works. But there's a whole other way to think about this. You think about it as a four-line poetic parallel, a poem. And here's the four lines. Number one, I am Yahweh. Number two, and I showed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Almighty, the one who can accomplish anything. Number three, but my name is Yahweh. Number four, surely I made myself known to them. Didn't I make myself known to them? There's, there's a wonderful book, Francis Anderson, called The Sentence in Biblical Hebrew that talks about how the sentence works in Hebrew, and, and that's his argument in here. And I think it's really cool, because here's what he's saying. The emphasis on this overall context is not about what Yahweh didn't do. It's just the opposite. This whole speech is about what Yahweh did do. 
I am Yahweh. I showed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Almighty, the powerful one. But my name, Yahweh, my covenant name, surely I made myself known. I made my covenant with them I, I, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of which they're going to be going to, that they were living in at that time. All of that's in the past, in the present. Furthermore, verse 5, I've heard the groaning of Israel. Because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I've remembered my covenant that I made with them. And then verses 6 to 80 moves into the future. Therefore, say to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your Elohim. And then here's the key line. And you all will know that I am Yahweh, that I am your Elohim, the covenant maker who is almighty, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'll bring you to the land I swore Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you as a, as a possession. I am Yahweh. In this speech, there's a repeated line, twice in the opening and twice in the closing. I am Yahweh. Four times, I am Yahweh. In the closing, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. That, the, the design of that whole speech leads to one point. Everyone will know who I am and what I'm like because of what I've promised, because of what I'm doing, because of what I will do. Everyone will know what I'm like. The whole reason God calls a people to himself isn't because they're better than anyone else. The whole reason God calls a people to himself is to let the whole earth, all the nations, know his character and who he is, and how loving and compassionate he is. All right, let's make some practical application here. The purpose of our freedom, the purpose of freedom that God offers us is to worship. From a biblical point of view, the purpose of freedom, the purpose of exodus, the purpose of deliverance is the purpose of worship. It's not freedom without restraints. It's not freedom for freedom's sake. Our purpose for freedom is that we can be oriented in the proper direction, to be reestablished in the life that we're created for. And you and I are created to be worshipers in the core of our beings. We will worship something. And we become more and more like whatever it is that we put in that place of worship. Whatever you put into that most central place in your life is what you're going to become like. It's such an important place in our lives. So sometimes we put something that, in that place that we just want more of. We think, I'd finally feel satisfied if I had another bicycle. I'd finally feel satisfied if I had like, another watch. I only got two arms. I'd finally feel satisfied. Yeah, but I could go all the way up. I need a different one for every day of the month. Honestly, human nature has not changed in this regard, even one little bit. If I had a little bit more of this substance... If I had a little bit more of an identity that I want to be known for, if I had more security, if I had a little bit more autonomy, if I had more me time, if I had a certain kind of experience, sometimes we put the really good gifts that God gives us into this place. If I had a little bit more family, if I had more friends, if I had a better friend, Sometimes we put our children in this place and they can't, they, our children can't withstand the pressure of being the thing that we worship. It destroys them. And we know what's in this place when it gets a little bit threatened. It hardly feels like if you took this out of my life, it hardly feels worth living at all. All the joy is gone. 
The doc says, I need you to stop doing this because it's destroying you. Or I want to give you this medication and so you can't do this. And you say, I can't live without that. Screw the medication. That's how you know that that's become the thing that you worship. When one child isn't doing perfectly, we can't even acknowledge that great things are happening in all the other children's lives. Listen, God invites us into a totally different kind of life, a radically different kind of life than what we're used to in our culture and in most of our families. Life with him at the center. And it's only that God-centered life that brings the fulfillment, the life beyond that we can imagine that we're after. It's only when our worship is rightly centered, even in the middle of adversity, that we can experience a peace that shouldn't even be possible. That's what Paul writes to the Philippian church. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that transcends all human understanding. Why does it transcend human understanding? Because in the situation that you're in, you shouldn't be experiencing peace. And yet you do. It's not because everything's going great that you're experiencing peace in this situation. Not in the Philippian church, not in the Roman Empire. Not one way that's, that's one of the first places where the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, Christ is Lord. And it's one of the places where Caesar came through that they were all chanting. Same exact words, only Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Kyrios, Greek word for Lord, versus Christ is Kyrios, Greek word for Lord. Like persecutions kind of rain down hard on them for that. And yet, peace. Peace. We can't get there on our own. Which is why God comes to us in the person of Jesus. Yahweh does all the heavy lifting to make this kind of life available. Jesus, who is the Christ, has accomplished this. That's why we do this thing we call musical worship, group karaoke at the vineyard. It's like this human activity that we can do that reorients our hearts and lives and longings and appetites around God. That when we gather together as a church, in person, online, and then we sing these songs as if they're our own prayers, God does this work of resetting the compass in our soul. He puts himself first. It reorients something. Worship does something no other human activity can do. And then it kind of resets us. That's why we need it week after week after week after week. Our compasses get out of whack pretty quickly and easily in the, in the culture that we live on. Our appetites, our longings, our hearts, our desires. One of the things that happens in this passage is the word serve is used repeatedly, often translated as worship. What... what God is going to invite his folks to do, what Yahweh is going to invite his people to do, is to actually build not storage cities for the worship of Pharaoh, but a temple, a tabernacle, and then a temple for him. He's saying, I am freeing them so they can serve me, actually a legitimate deity, the legitimate deity, the one who put this all in place, rather than the fake deity. Well, in the process of walking towards that freedom, that worship, the heat often gets turned up. And when the heat gets turned up, the doubts are really real. So Pharaoh wants the same unreasonable amount of work done with way fewer resources. Heat gets turned up. That's exactly what it feels like worshiping other gods. No matter how much you put into your body, the next time you need more if you want to get that same little buzz. And then you need more. And then you need more. And then you need more. And then you're controlled by it. 
We all have this built-in desire for a really fulfilling life to the fullest extent possible, John 10, 10. And it can happen with our children, and it can happen with illicit drugs. It can happen like all over the place that we do this, right? Addiction happens when we attach our desire to something that can't produce that kind of life. It promises what it can't deliver. And it can be making money, it can be having more degrees, it can be another person, it can be you know, alcohol, drugs, sexual activity, whatever. As the attachment grows, it consumes us. Little by little, we become captive to the very things that give us pleasure, that give us a little bit of meaning. And we're set up for this because we're hardwired to seek pleasure and avoid pain, but the pleasure doesn't fully satisfy. We need more and more. We feel trapped. We feel alone. It starts simple enough. It's just a craving. If I could just have chocolate, I would feel better right now. And then before we realize it, we're losing control. I have chocolate hidden everywhere. Do you know, you can put chocolate in little Ziploc bags and you can hide it in the toilet tank. Nobody looks there for chocolate. And the water in Duluth is cold. It keeps it chilled. And so you can pretend you're going to the bathroom, but you can be getting chocolate. There's so many days I need chocolate. I'm hiding it all over the house. Because I might have an emergency. And then we're stuck in this cycle of continuing use, avoiding play, avoiding pain, seeking pleasure apart from the presence of God. And then all sorts of doubts set in. The leaders that Moses and Aaron are trying to lead to freedom are doubting them. They said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You made obnoxious. You made us obnoxious to Pharaoh. Even when Moses comes back with a direct answer, verse 9, Moses reports this to the Israelites, chapter 6, verse 9, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and the harsh labor. They didn't listen to him. Here's what God says. The Israelites are saying, I don't care. Life is hard. I don't want to hear what God says. That never happens to us, does it? And then Moses returns to doubting himself. Look at verses 6 to 12, chapter 6. We're almost done. Stick with me. Verses 12, 10 to 12, chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let Israelites go out of his country. But Moses says to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Verse 28. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I've struggled with this before, why try right now? Why even give it a shot? The doubt is real. But remember, the main point of all this is not all that complicated, even even though it can feel that way. The main point is that we and everyone on the planet know who Yahweh is. The word translated know in the Hebrew is pronounced yada. It's It's an experiential kind of knowledge. It's not just knowing about Wikipedia or Google. It's actually having um, contact with. First place it's used is actually Genesis chapter 2. Adam knew Eve. And they conceived a baby. That's knowledge. Knowing God. That's the Hebrew word, yada. It, It brings all new light to Seinfeld when he would just go yada, 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 yada. It's actually speaking in Hebrew, right? 
Some of us are a little like Pharaoh. We just don't want to know. I don't care. I want to have my life challenged. We see ourselves as divine, completely in control, utterly self-sufficient. How can you ever bow before another if you're that kind of... Remember the rich young ruler walking away from Jesus? It's tough. It's a case of realizing that you think of yourself as being a blessing of God, that God has blessed you with all this stuff, and then all of a sudden God asks you to give it away, and you think, how can I ever part with it all? How can I part with that? God will bring Pharaoh down to human size and show us there's no actual rival gods. Here's the deal. Coming to Christ initially only requires really a couple of things. You have to come bankrupt, and you have to come as a failure. That's, that's why Christianity is so incredibly offensive to so many people. Because you, you only need a couple things. You have to have bankruptcy and failure. That's it. And that is hard. It's hard to come to God with everything that you're bringing and saying, but I'm not, that, I'm not as bad as my neighbor or that next neighbor down that never takes care of their yard. I'm not as bad as that guy, Michael Gatlin. Like, at least I take care of my yard, right? And... And to realize that to come to Christ, it's, I gotta be a failure, I gotta be bankrupt. You think, Michael, where is that in the Bible? Paul reminds us we can't accomplish any of this on our own, Ephesians chapter two. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might share the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kingdom to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And even that's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And that brings us back to worship. Worship describes, the word worship describes the way that you and I respond to what we know of God and what we experience of him. Worship describes the way that we respond to our knowledge and our experience of God. If there's no knowledge and experience, worship feels really shallow, like these are dumb songs, how come they're not better players? That's a sign of very shallow worship in your life. When the simplest of songs, the simplest of songs played by a child can actually begin to impact you emotionally, that's a sign that worship has actually gone way deeper. That there's something really good there that God is growing and birthing in your life. Like you don't need it a certain way, you don't need it a certain style. I just want some vehicle, God, to express my love to you. And it's not just the songs. It's the different ways of serving. If you need to serve to get a title, worship doesn't go very deep. If you can serve without being known, just hiding in the backgrounds, wow, there's something really good there. And it's not just about hiding in the background. Some people are asked to serve, I don't know why, like doing this kind of a thing, who'd much rather be in the background. It's like it's just saying, yes, God, you own my life. You can do whatever you want with it, no matter how much I don't like it from time to time. God delivers us so that we can 
experientially and personally, intimately know him, and our lives are freed to express that, to put him at the very center. This entire Exodus event is like, I love this picture, is like a monument that reminds us who God is. There are buildings in our town, community centers, hockey rinks, that have somebody's name on them. And by going to that hockey rink, you know exactly what kind of person that was, that they loved their community, they loved hockey, and they wanted it to go on and get and played for a really long time in, really, in, a, in a really great like, place. The entire Exodus event is like a monument with God's name on it that reminds us who he is. It shaped the nation of Israel. It's meant to shape our lives. All right, that's what I got. Whew, that's chapters five and six. It was fun. Why don't you guys stand up? And let's pray together and ask God to come do some cool stuff. The Exodus event is meant to remind us who God is, who we serve, whose we are, and the kind of people that we're meant to be following him in our current moment in history. And so... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you uh, graciously let us experience your presence right now? Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Father, we, uh, we want to be a people thoroughly in love with the scriptures, and we want to be a people thoroughly in love with your presence and all the gifts that you bring in the moment. And we want to be a people thoroughly in love with worshiping you in every area of our lives, wherever we go, whatever we're doing. And Father, there's so many things that we cling to, that we hold on to, kind of for false support, like really bad crutches that aren't helping. And so, Father, would you highlight anything in our lives that encroaches on that place that you should have kind of front and center? Would you highlight anything that feels like I can't live without it? If it were to be removed from me, life would not be worth living. Could you highlight that thing? Could you highlight anything that kind of has a hold on my heart? Even just a little hold. And one of the most helpful things I've found to do is when God highlights something, then I ask him a really simple question. Who would you like me to give that thing away to? Especially when it's a thing, like a book or a watch or you know, a painting or something like that, a bicycle. Who would you like me to give that to? And then to begin to listen to all the arguments that begin to dial up inside. Pay attention to all the ways that you resist that. You might not even be able to verbalize, who would you like me to give it to? Pay attention to why. And ask God to begin to untie some of those entanglements so that you can be fully his rather than worshiping a false deity. Just begin to ask him to lead you in that. And here's the deal. Sometimes like the rich young ruler, he does ask you to give it all away. Sometimes he does. And I have found there's no greater joy in that. No greater joy. It's like really fun. It's like it's actually hard to stop once you start. And somebody in your head, you just said, yeah, that's why I'm not going to start. 
<laughs> Father, would you reduce all of our deities down to human size? And I ask you do whatever it takes, just like you do with Pharaoh, to set the Israelites free to worship you. Would you set us free to worship you in every area of our life? Friend, ministry team, can you make your way up here? We want to begin to pray for one another. This is a place where you will experience grace as you bring some of those things that God's dialing up before the Lord. And I invite you to. This is about being all in, following Jesus, following God in, in the way that he wants to lead us. And so if you want to be all in, even just, I don't know, on the edge of radical, come up and get some prayer. And if you're afraid of that, come up and get some prayer. If you're afraid of even asking God, who, who should I give that away to? Come up and get some prayer. Just bring that fear. Turn to him rather than the false deity. This is that moment. So these guys will lead us in worship. Hang out in here. Get some prayer. Love you guys. And I look forward to studying the rest of Exodus. This is going to be amazing. Holy Spirit, would you give us your grace just to receive from you in these moments?